All right, everyone. Well, good morning. Um, we will be starting a new series today in our uh, Sunday school. We'll be walking through another book on biblical theology. So uh, if you haven't been here with us the last few months, we've been covering various short studies on different theological topics. So when we talk about biblical theology, what that essentially is, is going through different doctrines or topics within scripture and tracing those from Genesis all the way through Revelation, walking through uh, creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately consummation to see what scripture teaches us about these particular topics or doctrines. Um, Today we'll be starting another one of those studies. If you've been here for some of the previous ones, you might recall, you know, we've gone through the serpent and the serpent slayer, you know, that that theme of the the serpent and and Christ as the serpent slayer that as we've traced it through, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, we've looked at uh, most recently blessings, uh, the, the biblical doctrine of blessings. And now, as we turn to this next book, um, we'll, we'll be studying the topic of the Sabbath and what Scripture has to say about the Sabbath. As you can see from the slide up here, the title of the book that we'll be walking through is The Sabbath as Rest and Hope for the People of God. This book is written by Guy Prentice Waters, and we'll be covering chapter one today and then continuing to walk through the rest of the book over the course of the next few weeks. It'll probably take us through you know, into December, closer to the end of the year as we walk through this book, and it's gonna be a good one. Now, in our current time in 21st century America, there are few theological topics that are more controversial among people who would claim to be Christians as the topic of the Sabbath. So I think this study is gonna be really helpful for us. Um, When you talk to Christians, or at least people who profess to be Christians, um, simply asking the question, should Christians observe the Sabbath? And if so, how should they observe it? What does that mean? Simply asking that question is almost certain to spark a heated debate. What you'll find is that Christians, the Sabbath is a principle that's found throughout Scripture. You can't be familiar with the Bible in even the smallest amount without encountering the concept of the Sabbath. And so Christians know about the Sabbath, but what you'll find is that there are a wide variety of opinions uh, that you'll get from people if you ask that question, should we observe the Sabbath, and if so, how? Uh And most of the time, if you ask that question, the answer you're probably going to get, especially if you press people on it, is no. Um, You know, yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah, yep, (laughs) yeah, that's right. It's, It's different from saying, should Christians go to church or... Uh, and or asking the question, are Christians required to observe the Sabbath? You know, that, 
that's a, a very different question. And that's when you'll start to, to see the, the opinions really come out because everyone has a strong opinion on that. Um, but like I said, most of the time, the answer you're going to get is going to be a version of no. Um, most people are going to say no, Christians are not required to observe the Sabbath. Now, most of those same people, if you ask them if Christians are bound to observe any of the other nine commandments in the Ten Commandments, other than the fourth, are going to say yes, unequivocally. They'll say, absolutely, we are not to bear false witness. We are not to steal. We are not to commit adultery. We are not to covet. But then you get to that fourth commandment, and everything changes. Now, if you ask people why that is, why do they have a different opinion about the fourth commandment, they typically don't have good arguments to back it up. Um, you know, one thing you may hear is that the fourth commandment is not repeated explicitly in the New Testament, therefore Christians are not obligated to keep it. Well, according to that logic, there are other commandments from the Ten Commandments that are not explicitly repeated in the New Testament, and so you would have to also say that we are not bound to keep those. So that line of logic doesn't work very well. They may also say that the Sabbath was a ceremony for the people of Israel to keep, and now in the New Testament, the church is no longer required to keep that ceremony. But the fourth commandment, along with all of the other commandments, are not ceremonial laws given to Israel, right? Israel was given ceremonial laws, but the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law, which as God's moral law is binding upon all men everywhere at all times. And so we know that the Sabbath is not just a ceremonial law for the people of Israel, it's part of God's law, his moral law. Well, ultimately what we find is that there is a glaring inconsistency in the way that we view the fourth commandment compared to the way that we view the other nine. How often are we ready to aggressively defend the, uh, the other commandments and to insist that Christians are to keep those commandments morally obligated, that Christians are in sin if they do not keep those other commandments? However, whenever the fourth commandment comes up, we might you know, put our hands in our pockets and start kind of shuffling the feet a bit and say, well, yeah, we're required to keep it, but that doesn't mean, you know, fill in the blank. We don't want to be legalists. You know, we're afraid of being called legalists. It's pretty rare that you see someone get fired up in defending the fourth commandment and Christians' moral obligation to keep it. It's pretty rare. Think about it. Have you you know, have you seen someone stand up, you know, and slam their fist on the table and say, yes, we are required to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is what God commands of us. We must, for him. It's not very common that you see someone ready to defend that one. But why not? Why don't we defend that one the same way we would defend the Christian's moral obligation not to commit adultery or 
to not make graven images, to not use his name in vain. Is it because scripture is unclear about the Sabbath and what it is and its purpose, what it was made for, our requirement to keep it? Well, if you think scripture is unclear, hopefully no one does, but if you do, hopefully by the time we get through the end of this study, you won't feel that way anymore. But even if it is clear, do we not defend it aggressively because we're not sure about what scripture says about the Sabbath. We don't have a a firm understanding of what scripture teaches about it. Is it possible that we don't have a firm understanding because we don't want to? Is it further possible that we don't have a good understanding because we don't want to? Because if we did, we're afraid that might mean that we can't use that day to just do whatever it is that we want and that we might have to put more thought more effort into keeping it as the Lord's day and using it in the ways that he has commanded us to do that that might mean that we have to sacrifice some of our own selfish desires and truly honor it as the Lord's day his day Well, whatever the reason, I would submit to you that we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about the Sabbath, and that's to our own spiritual harm. Because when we look to Scripture and see God's design for the Sabbath, what we find is that it is an incredible blessing for his people. It's a day of holy resting. It's a day of worshipful communion with him. And it's a foretaste of that communion that we hope for as we look to that day when we will enjoy God's presence for eternity, when we'll be in that perpetual rest that we'll enjoy with him. So it's with that in mind that we start off in the first chapter of this book, where we have started so many times in these studies on biblical theology uh, with creation. The title of the first chapter of the book is Creation, and that's where we'll start out. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'll also have this up on the screen, but uh, we're going to start out in Genesis chapter 2 and the first three verses. You want to follow along there. But if you recall, in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, God makes the world and everything in it. He creates all of creation within six days and is all good. And then after day six, we read the account given here in the first three verses of chapter two in Genesis. So we'll go ahead and read through these. Starting in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now the first thing we see in these verses is that God's work of creation is complete. The heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them, as it says. God has completed at this point what he had set out to do in creation, and he's done so in a span of six days. 
Now on the seventh day, we do not see that familiar pattern of God creating, but rather it says that he rested from all the work that he had done. Although the word Sabbath does not appear here in this text, the Hebrew verb that's translated as rested when it says that God rested, that uh, shares uh, its root with a Hebrew noun that is translated in Scripture as Sabbath. So there's the connection there uh, between Sabbath and this resting that God is doing on the seventh day. Additionally, we'll see in this passage uh, that the seventh day is set apart from God from the previous six days in a couple of different ways. For one, we read that God blessed the seventh day. God had previously pronounced the blessing upon the birds and the sea creatures. If you remember our study on blessings, we talked about this, but you know, the first time we see God explicitly pronouncing a blessing in chapter 1 of Genesis is on the birds and the sea creatures, telling them to be fruitful and multiply. Then the second example of blessing that we see in chapter 1 is after God has created the man and the woman. He blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it. This here, this um, proclamation of blessing that God pronounces over the seventh day is the third instance of blessing that we see in scripture. And this indicates that the Sabbath day, this day of rest, is part of God's creation order. That's important to note because the Sabbath isn't something that we come to later in scripture. The Sabbath is seen right here on the seventh day, and we'll continue to come back to that as we go through our study. But what we see here is that from the very beginning, God's intent was to bless this seventh day. Then the second action we see God taking with regard to the seventh day is that he made it holy. Again, if we look at the word, uh, the Hebrew word kadas, that's translated here as God making holy the seventh day, the common use of that elsewhere in the Old Testament is a reference to the setting apart of humans or things specifically for religious use. And so the connotation here is that God making this day holy is him setting it apart for worship, for religious use. And so when you put all of this together, we see that God has blessed the seventh day, and he has set it apart as a holy day of rest and worship. Now, this comes directly on the heels of God making the man and the woman in his own image. As God's image bearers, the man and the woman are uniquely capable among all the creatures to worship God and to enjoy fellowship and communion with him on this seventh day that he has blessed and made holy. And so it is that God creates the Sabbath so that the man and the woman might rest along with him and enjoy this sweet communion with him in that rest. Now, we tend to think of the pinnacle of creation being on the sixth day, when God creates the man and the woman in his own image. However, what we see here in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 2 is that the true pinnacle of creation is God's creation of man and bringing him into a worshipful relationship 
with God on this seventh day. So this truly is the pinnacle. This is the summit. This is as good as it gets. Man and woman have not only been created, but they've been brought into this communion with God on that seventh day. Now there are two key points to see here. On the one hand, it's here that we come to understand part of God's design for man as his image bearer. As one who bears God's image, man is designed to reflect God's image in the earth by imitating the pattern that God has made, modeled for him in his working for six days and then resting on the seventh. While we don't see that explicitly here in chapter 2, we will see later when God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel through Moses that this is the case, that God has laid down this pattern for man, this six days of work and one day of rest from the beginning. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, which is in the midst of God giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, we read, starting in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The basis for this pattern of six days of work and one day of rest as a Sabbath or holy day is the pattern that God has established in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He created all things in a period of six days, and then he rested on the seventh. God even refers to that seventh day here as a Sabbath day. I don't know if you noticed that, but in the giving of the fourth commandment, the Lord refers to that seventh day when God rested as the Sabbath day. It was a Sabbath. The second point that we see here is that God has made the Sabbath as a blessing for the man and the woman. They are given the blessing of being able to join God in his rest and to enjoy a peaceful state of communion and fellowship with him. We see this confirmed in the New Testament through indirect testimony to the Sabbath as an ordinance for humanity established at creation. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, we read of one of a number of instances where Jesus runs afoul of the religious authorities of his day. He, by breaking the laws that they had made around what could and could not be done on a Sabbath day. So we'll go ahead and read there in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, 
the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What we see in this story is that the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath laws. Laws that had been made by man, laws that were not given by God. They accused them of breaking the law by plucking heads of grain to eat, by his disciples plucking heads of grain to eat. Just as a side, you know, that's, that's not very strenuous work. And it's pretty modest work, honestly, uh, for a bunch of hungry folks to be walking through the field and, and literally trying to survive on um, the, the grain from the field. But what we see is that Jesus rebukes them and points out that the Sabbath was not designed to cause man suffering, but rather blessing, which meant that the laws that they had come up with ran directly counter to the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus sums this up in verse 27 when he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is perfectly consistent with what we see in Genesis chapter 2. There God creates the Sabbath and he blesses it. And he blesses the man and the woman by allowing them to rest with him and to worship him on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, as our Lord Jesus Christ has said, is made for man. It's a blessing for him. And so when we see the Pharisees, you know, becoming truly legalistic, trying to order, you know, people as to what they can and can't do on the Sabbath, that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to glorify God and to give his people rest and to give them one day out of seven where they don't have to go out and do all of the other things that they need to be doing, they can take that rest and enjoy fellowship with him and to enjoy that blessing. The, the religious leaders of that time had it completely wrong. They were, you know, 180 degrees from the point or from the purpose of the Sabbath. And of course, ultimately, the Sabbath is made for God's glory. Um, but it's absolutely made as a blessing for man. Now, the author of the book actually breaks this down further into three points that Jesus makes here, which I thought were really helpful. Uh, the first that he made was that the Sabbath here was not unique to the Jew, but it was rather for all men. He says the Sabbath was made for man. Uh, we know this because the Sabbath was established, as we've seen, at creation, you know, prior to the nation of Israel, the Sabbath was a blessing for all men. And the Sabbath also clearly was made, right? Jesus says it was made. It was a divine ordinance. This was an act God took as part of his creation. And then also, thirdly, the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath is intended to promote and to further God's purposes for the man that he created, for all of humanity. As the author says, the Sabbath is a means to an end, specifically the end for which God created human beings, which is to commune with him 
and to find rest and refreshment in this divine communion. Now in the next section of the chapter, the author points out uh, the eschatological and covenantal aspects of the Sabbath. First, he points out that eschatology, or the study of last things, the study of you know, the end times and, and the end of the age and the age to come, uh, that this brings into view the fact that human history has meaning and direction, that there is a divinely decreed end which means there will be divinely decreed means or steps toward that end. History is moving toward the goal that God has set for it. And this goal is one that God has purposed in eternity and revealed at the very beginning of history in the establishment of the Sabbath, the blessed communion of his image bearers with the God who made them. And as we continue to read through chapter 2 of Genesis, that goal becomes more clear. Now we see there that God creates the Garden of Eden and places the man within it. Then God makes a covenant with Adam, which we refer to as the covenant of works. Adam is commanded to obey God and specifically to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam is to work and to keep the garden and to guard and protect it from any transgression of God's law. Now, in this covenant of works, Adam's disobedience is to be punishable by death. This implies that his obedience, on the other hand, would have been rewarded by eternal life. And that would be secured and confirmed by God. Had Adam obeyed God, he would have continued to enjoy this intimate fellowship with God in perpetuity. And it is this blessed life that is actually envisioned in the seventh day resting that we read of in the first three verses of chapter 2. The author makes the point that Adam's obedience would have resulted in a perpetual, permanent, and eternal Sabbath with God. Now, when we say perpetual Sabbath, it's important to understand what we're not saying. We're not saying that man would no longer work or have work to do, that he would not be both working and resting with the Lord. After all, we see that work is part of God's good creation. It's part of what he gave, you know, part of the responsibility that Adam had in the garden is given to him by God was to work. It's a, work is a holy and a good thing. But what we mean when we say that it would have been a perpetual Sabbath is that man would live forever in a perfect state of rest in a peaceful and right relationship with his creator. This would have been the state of Adam and his posterity had he been obedient to this covenant of works. The author quotes Gerhardus Voss as saying, the so-called covenant of works was nothing but an embodiment of the sabbatical principle. Had its probation been successful, then the sacramental Sabbath would have passed over into the reality it typified, and the entire subsequent course of history of the race would have been radically different. 
what now is it to be expected at the end of this world would have formed the beginning of the world course instead. In other words, had Adam kept God's commandments, the eternal state of peace and righteousness with God that's typified in the Sabbath and that we ultimately hope for and anticipate in the age to come would have been ushered in from the beginning of the world. But of course, that is indeed yet to come because Adam sinned against God and in him we all have sinned. And so this perpetual Sabbath rest that was Adam's to grasp, to take hold of, has now been deferred. But it has not been lost. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he accomplished their redemption on the cross at Calvary. And in doing so, he has preserved their hope for this permanent, perpetual Sabbath rest. Now in the New Testament, this idea of a hope for a future rest is described explicitly in detail in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. In these chapters, we see most clearly this concept of an eschatological rest, an eternal Sabbath that Christians can hope for and are to strive toward as they walk in Christ. And so if you want to go ahead, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we will spend a bit of time here walking through Hebrews 3 and 4. So starting in chapter 3, the author of the book of Hebrews begins to compare and contrast the church with the fledgling nation of Israel that sojourned through the wilderness, having been delivered out of Egypt and prior to being brought to the promised land. He starts in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, which is actually quoting from Psalm 95. So we'll read there, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When that last verse, we see God referring to a rest. He calls it my rest. It's God's rest. It's a resting that God does. From his words, it appears that there is a possibility of entering that rest with him. As he calls Israel in Psalm 95 to be obedient, to not harden their hearts, as did the wilderness generation, so that they would not suffer the same fate as that generation, that being what God says here about them, they shall not enter my rest. What's implied is that if the wilderness generation failed to enter this rest, God is referring to because of disobedience and hardness of heart, that if Israel would now at this time, it's Psalm 95, the giving of Psalm 95, 
uh, if Israel would respond to God with faith and obedience, they would enter his rest. Then in the discourse that follows in the book of Hebrews, after he quotes Psalm 95, um, the writer describes the wilderness generation as one that rebelled, one that sinned, one that was disobedient and was unbelieving. Despite God's goodness towards them and the good news that they received, they rebelled against God. And so now the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 95 to the new covenant church rather than Israel, and he likewise warns the church against similarly having an evil and unbelieving heart and the hardening of the deceitfulness of sin. Then as we get into chapter 4, the writer begins to really exhort the church to not be disobedient to God's call and to the good news that's been given to them, but instead to hold fast to faith in Christ and to seek to enter God's rest. He'll continue on this theme of God's rest as it represents the reward that awaits those Christians who persevere in their faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll go ahead and read in chapter 4, we'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll come back and talk about what's being said there. So I'll go ahead and read, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We see there in verse 2 that the church today has good news offered to it, just as it was offered to the wilderness generation. That good news is the good news of salvation through faith in God. That generation did not respond to God in faith, and so the writer of Hebrews exhorts the church not to make the same error, and not to fall into the same sort of disobedience, as he says later in verse 11. As we saw in chapter 3, this disobedience made God swear in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In light of this divine oath, the writer warns the church 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you have failed, should seem to have failed to reach it. But what is God's rest? What is the rest that the wilderness generation failed to attain through their lack of faith and that the church is now called to enter into through faith? Well, we get to that answer in verses 3 and 4. We read there, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The rest that is in view here, the rest that was rejected by Israel in the wilderness, and that is extended here to God's people in the New Covenant Church, is the seventh day rest of creation. This is the Sabbath rest of God's people. This is what the author is referring to. As we've been seeing in our study, it's confirmed here that there is a Sabbath day rest for God's people in the New Covenant. Further, what we see being referred to here is a future rest. The writer of Hebrews points this out when he says that the Israelites who did have faith in God and were saved, even though they were delivered by Joshua into the promised land, still had not entered his promised rest. It's not as if the ones who believed did enter into the rest. David writes Psalm 95, and he's still referring to a rest that has not yet been realized. This rest is a future rest for Christians today, just as it was for God's people in Israel. And how does one enter into that rest? By resting from dependence upon his own good works for salvation and by receiving the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way that we enter that rest. And so it is that the Sabbath that God made for man at creation will eventually become a permanent rest of fellowship and worship of the Lord in his presence and what the writer of Hebrews refers to later in the book as that better country that is a heavenly one, and the city that is to come. That is the rest that Christians strive toward and hope for as we cling to Christ in faith. And so just to bring together all that we've discussed so far, we'll walk through the main points. After six days of work and creation, God rested on the seventh day. He blessed this day and made it holy. He set it apart as a day for his image bearers to enjoy restful worship and communion with him. Later in Exodus, God calls this seventh day on which God rested, he calls it the Sabbath. And he gives the Ten Commandments as a summary of his moral law that is binding on all men in all places at all times. And the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. God made it holy. We are to keep it holy. From this, we learn that the Sabbath has existed since creation. 
and is part of the creation order. In fact, the covenant of works God made with Adam was designed to bring man into a perpetual Sabbath of peaceful and worshipful communion with God upon Adam's obedience to that covenant. However, Adam and all of us who are in Adam have sinned against God, and therefore we did not enter into that perpetual Sabbath. We did not enter into God's rest. However, because Jesus Christ has accomplished the salvation of God's people, and because God freely offers this gift of salvation to all who repent of their sin and who place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, God's people still have access to enter into that rest should they persevere in that faith. And so, all believers are called to faith in Christ. They're called to faith in Christ alone for salvation and to trust in God's promises, lest they fail to enter into God's rest, that perpetual Sabbath communion with him. And lastly, in the meantime, God's people imitate him in working for six days and setting aside the seventh day as a holy day of resting and worshiping the Lord, a Sabbath. The Sabbath day is a foretaste of and points God's people to the eternal Sabbath that they will one day enjoy with God in that heavenly country, that city that is to come. And so with this as our foundation, in the coming weeks we'll continue to walk through the law, the prophets, the New Testament, in order to further unpack what God has revealed to his people about his Sabbath.